Hi there, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show where we answer questions. We discuss questions brought up by reading the Bible, and we also discuss your questions. Now, my name is Corey. And I'm Matlock. And today, if you are not already linked into our Bible reading program, we're reading through the Bible this year, and you would like to be linked into that Bible reading program, then check out BibleDiscoveryTV.com. You can get yourself all set up. Now today, Matlock, what yeah. is the scripture that we're covering? So today we're covering Leviticus 9 to Numbers 3. So a lot of law. Lots of law. Lot, lots of law. Lots yeah. of Leviticus today. Yeah. And I just want to put this caveat in here as well. If you haven't done this weekly reading, but you'd like to know what was all encapsulated in it, please check out our weekly 10-minute recap. Uh, it, I just go over point by point what exists in Leviticus 9 to Numbers chapter 3 so you can kind of be familiar with the the topics that we're talking about. Uh, so yeah, okay, so today our overarching big question that we're going to take from the scripture would be what is the purpose of the laws in Leviticus in the first place? So that's a, a huge topic that we're going to discuss at the end of today's program. We're also going to be talking about things like why was God so harsh with Nadab and Abihu? Uh, can we still eat? Can we eat blood? Can we eat meat? What's what's the deal with that? We're going to be taking a look at some kosher laws. Uh, lots of good things up on up on the table today. Tattoos. Tattoos. We're going to be taking a look at <laughs> Christians can have tattoos. Uh, Lots of stuff coming yeah. up. Okay, so maybe we should just jump right in. I think so. your questions. Yeah, so I'll yeah. start off. Question <laughs> from John. John, okay. okay. Okay, so this pertains really to Leviticus 8, which was last week. Yes. But, you know, we had so many questions last week that we could really factor and into it, this week. And it does also cross over into the rest of Leviticus, which we'll see. Yes, exactly. So here, okay, so here's his question. Sure. What is biblical anointing, and is it a practice we should be following today? Yeah, this is a huge question, John, and it's so cool. I love taking, I, I love looking at biblical anointing. So when you just do a word search in a Bible software program, whether that's online like Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible, or whether that's on Logos or something like that, you can see all the different instances when the Bible talks about anointing. And it's, it's actually very, very helpful. So we learn from this right away that in the ancient culture, both people and things could be anointed. Uh, and anointed essentially means set apart for a task. Uh, and in the Bible's case, for a holy task, a divine task given to God. So we see, for example, in Genesis 31 verse 13, God is talking to Jacob, the patriarch, and he refers back to a pillar that Jacob set up and anointed at the site of Bethel, because Jacob made a promise to God that if God brought him back to the land of Canaan, to this promised land, that Jacob would create a place of worship for God there at Bethel. So he, to mark that promise, to mark that covenant, he set up a pillar and anointed it as a symbol that this whole place was holy. It was set apart to God because of a dream that he had. So we have this thing being set apart and this place being set apart. Then, of course, we get into Exodus and Leviticus. And in, in Exodus 29, we see the priests being anointed for service in the tabernacle. Uh, we see Aaron, the high priest, specifically being anointed by oil being poured on his head. 
like a, like a decent amount of oil being poured on top of his head. And only the high priest was anointed in this way. The, the sons of Aaron, then the, the other priests, were told later on in Exodus 29 that they were sprinkled with oil and they were also sprinkled with blood from a sin offering uh, to, to, to cleanse them. So this is setting apart the priesthood for service to God and setting apart the high priest, distinguishing him even from the the regular priests. Now, what I find really interesting is that the anointing oil in the Old Testament, um, it it was it was special. It was called a fra- the fragrant work of a perfumer, and it had um, there was a recipe, and only the oil used in tabernacle and later temple service could have this fragrance attached to it. Why that's really um, interesting is that in the ancient world and in the Old Testament, we see this concept of separating what is human and what is godly. So this idea that human stench is related to death. You know, when we die, our bodies decompose and and it's quite smelly. and like we stink as humans. And so there's this idea of um, God, when we are set apart, his purpose to us in this, represented by this anointing oil, his purpose for Aaron covers that sin. It covers uh, that, that death. So it's this whole interplay between death and life, between smelliness and, and smelling pleasant. And it's interesting as well, so you can read about the, the fragrance in Exodus chapter 30. But then in Exodus chapter 31, the anointing oil is paired up with the fragrant incense that the high priest was also supposed to offer. So then we have this, this smell again, um, which is really interesting when you take a look into that because we, we're, we're seeing that God's purpose for Aaron cleansed him and, and, and healed him kind of from, it enabled him to minister before God taking away that human stink. And then we have the prayers of the people represented by the smelling incense that changes the atmosphere in a way that instead of human stink, we have a pleasant smell, but also the cloud kind of is, it acts as a protection from Aaron seeing the full glory of God as it would appear So you've got this purpose and protective element going on in anointing. I know I'm going down a path. Yes, but (laughs) because there's something else to kind of add there, because he's also asking about the practice and should we practice today? And that does relate to kind of like, um, there's essentially two forms of anointing. There's a spiritual anointing and there's a ceremonial anointing, you could say. Yes. So... And, and and the Old Testament talks about both because at first, I mean, there's no king in Israel. It's just the high priest who is anointed in this way. But very quickly, when we get into 1 Samuel, we see the prophet Samuel anointing King Saul in this way. So the first king of Israel, he pours over top of his head um, oil and, and uh, in 1 Samuel 10, the Spirit of God, we're told the Spirit of God, let me, I have, I think I have it marked here. Yeah, so Samuel anoints Saul, and then he says in verse 6 of First Samuel chapter 10, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. So we've got Saul being set apart to lead the nation of Israel, this nation of holy priests to God, and 
this anointing for purpose also comes with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the exact same thing uh, in a slightly different way happens to King David. Uh, when David is anointed, uh, he, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, it says this, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Right. So we have the anointing of the kings of Israel being paired with the Holy Spirit being upon them. So we've got a physical and a spiritual task for them. Now in the Psalms, and in the, in the prophets, the anointed became a phrase meaning the king of Israel. And then it took on this prophetic meaning. Uh, it became the anointed one who is to come. So it, Messiah means anointed one. So in that sense, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be the anointed one. Um, so already you have two anointings happening. You have kings being anointed. You have Aaron being anointed. Yeah, so priests, priests and kings. kings. That's right. And then so in this figure of the Messiah, we have someone who is melding those roles, according to Hebrews. Right. Someone who is the high priest forever, but he is also the king. So he is this ultimate anointed one, this representative of he of the, the roles that used to be separate of high priest and king. Right. Now they are one in Christ, in this ultimate anointed one. And we see in Acts 10, verse 37, when uh, Peter is talking to Cornelius, he's he, he talks about how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power for doing good things and for healing all of those who are under the power right. of the devil, okay? But then when we move on, uh, we move on into 2 Corinthians. I'm gonna, gonna find it here. Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting because it's not that this idea of anointing moves from just being Christ to also being us. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 21, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership upon us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Right. So there's this spiritual anointing that comes with the Holy Spirit. And to add to that, because... Very similar to what happened yeah, to Yeah, because David. the point of this anointing process is to set apart, is to become holy. Yes. This is, and there's a reason why they're called saints. Saint and sacred, and or you know, uh, holiness, they're all from the same etym etymological root. Mm -hmm. So in other words, St. Peter means holy Peter, okay? Yes. Um, to be sanctified means to be made holy, and sancti sanctity and saint are the same word. Yes. So what you have here is that Peter even says that us, us, like as a congregation of people, are part of the royal priesthood. This idea of being kingly, of sons of kings, and priests mm -hmm. were being grafted into that process. Peter says, I think it's First Peter verse two. I have First Peter chapter two. Either way, I can't remember, but I think that's really important into this discussion because that anointing process of being king and priest, who Christ is the ultimate king and the ultimate high priest, right? Yeah. Uh, we've been grafted into that as heirs of that promise, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I think it factors into that that holiness factor. Yeah, we are we are set apart. We are different. Uh, 
for a purpose. Right. For a purpose. So what is that purpose? What is the purpose of Christians, right. which we see in Matthew 28, 28, right? The Great Commission. We are to go into all the world and spread the gospel, spread the good right. news to everyone. Uh, and, and we are anointed. We are set apart for that task. I think it's really interesting too, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 26 and 27, uh, John is talking to the people about uh, false teachers who are coming in and 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 um, he says this, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So again, the, we're seeing on the spiritual side of this discussion of anointing, God's anointing to us spiritually involves the Holy Spirit of God. So, and and it's, it's, it's sets us apart. It's protective. It right. teaches just like in John 14, Jesus talks about how the Holy Spirit is able to and will teach. Right. And I think that the important thing is when we talk about practicing it, so you have the spiritual anointing. And you have the ceremonial anointing, which is, you know, when uh, Samuel went to David and he anointed him with oil and with Saul. So you still have this anointing process, physical mm -hmm. act happening, kind of like baptism. Yeah. But there's a spiritual baptism as well, just as, just as there is a spiritual anointing. But what's really important there is that regardless of the physical action, mm -hmm. of the ceremonial action, mm -hmm. anointing is from God every time. We don't just anoint things for the sake of anointing things. God is the anointer. So the Holy Spirit anoints us and makes us holy is yes. the principle. Yes. Now, there is one case in the New Testament where we are encouraged to anoint. Okay. We, we are The elders of the church specifically right. are encouraged to anoint Christians who come to them for prayer over sickness. Right. And that's in James 5, verse 14. It says, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is but powerful. Right there, but right there. Okay, so that anointing practice mm -hmm. points to the prayer and faith. Yes. It's not just the action in and of itself. That, do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And it also ties into the spiritual, uh, to the Holy Spirit is the one who's working in this process. Mm -hmm. So the spiritual anointing takes precedent over the ceremonial anointing. Yeah. Is what I'm trying to say there. The yeah. object of the oil itself is not what um, makes someone holy. It is the Holy Spirit through and through. But the, the physical action, the process of doing it, is represented by, right, through the Holy Spirit, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's a representation, it's a symbol of that. Mm -hmm. And that's important to still do. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying is, I'm not saying, I hope I was clear on this, don't anoint people with oil because it right. doesn't matter. Because that's a silly dichotomy that, you know, oh, we say it's just spirit, that's all that matters. Like, no, we're, we're flesh and spirit, we're both. So you do physical yeah. action as much as you do the spiritual action. Um, so the point here is that I'm, I'm just trying to make it. It's a reminder of a spiritual reality. That's and exactly right. I think that is right. what we see in James. And, and we know that in both the Old and New Testaments, oil culturally as well. We've lost this now because of modern medicine. Modern medicine's great. But we've lost the, the concept of um, oil used to be used for uh, 
for physical cleanliness, you know, in soaps, right. um, but also for bodily wellness. So anointing right. yourself with oil in a, in everyday sense, in a secular sense, not in a religious sense, would just be part of your daily upkeep. Putting right. on cream, bathing yourself, uh, and it was also used in medical treatments of cuts and wounds and things of that nature. Right. So. There's this physical element of wellness as well, uh, so it's not a it's it's no wonder then that olive oil is used in this process because it right. represents healing, it represents cleanliness, um, and yeah. and being so healing and cleanliness is part of being set apart for God. Right. So when we when we get here to James five, it's really interesting because we are spiritually Christians, we are spiritually set apart, we are anointed for the purpose of building God's kingdom. But something here, you know, when you become sick or injured, something here has inhibited that process. Right. And so now you're coming to the elders of the church and they are setting you apart, asking for God's healing. Right. But in, and more than just that, because if you read it very carefully, it's not just your immediate healing now. Right. It's for the ultimate healing because it specifically says for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. So yep. it's for the ultimate healing and it says, and God will raise you up if it's the prayers in good faith. Mm -hmm. In other words... This healing, right? All physical healings we have now, all this anointing is for the final resurrection. It's for that, right? So it's like you have to have your ducks in a row. You have to have the proper order of things mm -hmm. in order for this anointing to really make sense. It's not just about pouring oil on things, being like, oh, we did an incantation. We did this magical step-by-step -step process. Therefore, God will heal you. It just doesn't work that way, right? right. You're, therefore, you're anointed because I poured oil on you. It is uh, uh, fundamentally from the spirit to the flesh. It is through and through. It's a whole... It's a whole process. So I, anyways, I think that, and in terms of practicing also, yeah. eldership, priests, pastors, presbyters, mm -hmm. those are the ones in charge of the anointing oil. People who, do you see what I'm saying? They were the Levites were as well, and the people who were, mm -hmm. uh, who were formerly priests. People who are responsible for the spiritual health of the church. Yes. Were, were charged with that practice because that was, that was what they spent all of their time doing. Right. You know, thinking about and praying about and working towards the spiritual health of their church. And so this just makes sense. Right. But then you go to the elders of the church who are in charge of your spiritual health and right. ask them to pray for you because you've come to a roadblock. That's exactly so, right. Yeah. So I think I think back to the back to the to the original question, the purposes of anointing in the scripture, it's so rich and it's so symbolic and practical as well. And we do see uh a part of this practice, at least, spill over into the time period of the church and the early church in the New Testament, uh, in James five, and but but in a very real spiritual way, God anointing His people as well. Good illusion, spill over. Okay, I think that's good. <laughs> I have another question. Perfect. It, it pertains to Leviticus ten. Okay. Uh, why was the Lord so harsh when dealing with Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus ten? Oh my goodness, this. Yeah. is a good question. Uh, very harsh. So in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu offer a profane fire before God. And um, so fire that's unauthorized, that they were not supposed to offer in their, in their censer. So this is likely incense. You know, they would put incense over top of the fire. Uh, but there was protocol on how they were supposed to do this. And apparently they did not follow that protocol. And so God struck them dead, which seems extremely harsh. This has to do, this episode in Leviticus 10, I believe has to do with the holiness of God 
as does much of the book of Leviticus. It deals with how the Israelites needed to be holy and how the priests had to be holy because God is so holy. And so it is not an appropriate, it is not a, like we're dealing with life and death here when we, when we come towards God. We have to treat God as holy. His holiness is real and we are not. We are not sinless. And so there was a way that the Israelites needed to approach God in order to keep that in mind, in order to just keep their thinking about God healthy and appropriate. Uh, Now, this isn't the only time in scripture when God strikes people dead uh, for something like this. And it's, it's a really uncomfortable thing for us to think about. But I mean, think about we've got Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. Then we have Achan is struck dead uh, during the conquest. That's in Joshua 7. Mm -hmm. Then we have Uzzah or Uzzah, however you want to pronounce it, who tries to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling over in 2 Samuel 6. He touches it. You're not allowed to touch it. And he is struck dead. And then in the New Testament, we have Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead for lying uh, to the church and trying to lie to God in Acts chapter 5. Now, what I think, you know, as I, I think about these situations in particular, it's really interesting because they're all at times of transition for for God's plan of redemption and times of establishment. So Nadab and Abihu are here at the establishment of God's presence being reintroduced to mankind in the tabernacle. Uh, You know, God's presence left humanity in the garden of Eden. And now it's going, it's, it's, it's coming back in a very real way, uh, to Israel with this tabernacle, a meeting place between God and mankind, such as has not happened since the Garden of Eden, okay? And they disrespect that. It's a time of transition and establishment, and God's holiness is really emphasized. Same with Achan. Israel was going to take over a place. This place, this landmass is where God was going to put his name according to Deuteronomy. So this is the next step in God's redemption plan for humanity. And Achan steals some of the holy things dedicated to destruction. Um, And so he is struck dead. He disrespects the holiness of God. He tries to steal from God. And God makes an establishment act. Absolutely not. That can't happen. Uzzah, David is trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the place where God has put his name on Mount Zion, where the temple will be. It's an establishing moment. And Uzzah dies for the mistake of the Levites and David of not following the protocol that God put in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy for the for the carrying of the Ark of the Covenant. So it goes to fall and Uzzah pays the price for that. Uh, And then again, in Acts chapter five, the early church is being established. This this next step in God's plan of salvation. Uh, And Ananias and Sapphira lie. They, They treat God with contempt. And so I think what we see here is God establishing his holiness and our weakness and the inappropriateness of us disrespecting him is inappropriate. It's not acceptable. And it's a dangerous game because by nature of who we are, we will die. 
We cannot stand in the full holiness of God. We no longer have that ability because of our sin nature and because of our own personal sins. It is God's mercy that he is, he is, have it, he is reintroducing us to that relationship with him. And so we have to treat it as such. God is holy. Uh, and so I think that's the reason, ultimately. That's, what do you think? That's good. No, I think that's a good explanation. Like, I don't think I have much more to add. I mm -hmm. think you pretty much nailed it on the head. Yeah, it's really interesting when, when you have a situation like this to take a step back and go, okay, this seems overly harsh. Why? Where, where are other comparables in the scripture? Right. How does the other, how do these other scriptures help me understand what's going on? Even consider how harsh God was with Moses when he hit the rock, mm -hmm. right? And God's like, now you want to enter the promised land. Yep. Like, throughout the old, like, th not in Genesis, but from Exodus onwards, it's kind of like God appears extremely harsh with Israel. Mm -hmm. Extremely harsh. Now, and, and he set them apart for a purpose. They have to accomplish that purpose. That's right. Because his purpose is life and death. It's 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 salvation for mankind. That's right. And we're, Yeah, exactly. It's so important. Right. And there's so much more on the line here than, like you were saying, salvation. We'll get into this, what Paul thinks about through this process. Mm -hmm. But there's so much more on the line here than just you following rules. Yeah. It's their lives that are at stake. Totally. And they're not and they're ignoring it themselves. Mm -hmm. Like it's like and not only when you ignore when you ignore truth and you ignore moral principles and you ignore you know things that are fundamentally necessary for even though you might think you're only hurting yourself, you're always hurting other people. Mm -hmm. It's just the way it is. So it's like no matter what, it's like you can't escape when you sin, even though you're sinning towards yourself, even in, in that sense, in that mm -hmm. vein, you're never sinning towards yourself because you're corrupting yourself, which then will corrupt others. And it's like, no matter what, it's always, sin's always bound to a relational, bound in a relational way. Um, and I think that's just important. But yeah, and, and in that, holiness is a big factor. You can see, as you said before, the sacredness and the holiness, when you have a lot of laws that are set in there, it really makes things much more distinct and set apart within yeah. themselves, Yeah. right? All those distinctions. So I think that's part of it as well. But anyways, Agreed. I think that's it. Okay, I have a question for you. Okay, yeah, I sure. want to ask you this viewer question. Okay, uh, why is it so important that we don't eat or drink the blood of animals? Can I eat my steak blue or rare or must I eat it? Well done. <laughs> question for you, Malak. All right. <laughs> now, now, of course, this has to do with Leviticus chapter 17. Yeah. Which God, in which God reestablishes not to eat blood. Right. Okay, so there's two... Two things going on there. For one, why is it important that we don't eat the blood of animals, right? It's like, what's so important about the blood itself? Yes. Is one question. The other one is, well, what does this mean about my lifestyle and eating habits? Okay, right, so those right, are two, right. different, two different questions. Let's Fair enough. Let's address the first one, for, which is for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Okay. What's really interesting is that word life, nefesh in Hebrew, mm -hmm. is the same word we translate for soul. Now, in English, we have different contexts for this. Okay, so we're like, okay, well, we'll make it translate life here, and we'll translate soul over here. Mm -hmm. But it's the same word. Mm -hmm. But but in our context, like the, the King James captures it as just soul. So like in our modern context, we have differentiation between these things. But I don't think the Hebrews did. I think they would read, for the soul of the flesh is in the blood. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of an important thing to consider here because that is not a cultural claim. That is not, hey, our culture thinks soul is in the blood. It's like, no, 
the soul is in the blood, the life is in the blood. And then, you know, we get later on, we see in Acts 15, 20, I'll read you the verse where they, they maintain this law. Right, for the church. For the for church. The, for the Christian Gentiles. That's right. It yeah. says, instead, we should write to them, the Gentiles, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Yes. And that's the same principle. So you ask yourself, okay, so why? Like, why is blood so important? And we see in Hebrews 9, verse 22, I'll read this. The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we already have something else more that's here. Okay, so without the shedding of life, the shedding of soul, there's no forgiveness. Okay. It really does enforce that this that sin is a very serious business. Sin is a very it's life mm -hmm. and death, like it's you were life saying. And death. Life and death. It's uh, like holiness is intimately in integrated as part of life. If we've made life not sacred, mm -hmm. so because we've made life not sacred, do you see what I'm saying here? Mm -hmm. Or the path I'm going? Therefore, life has to be taken in its place. And this is why Christ comes in the all right, dies on the cross. For the shedding of his blood is the forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. So you have that relationship there. And what's really important about that relationship is that through Christ's blood, the shedding of his blood, right? His life, his soul, are we is our life and our souls redeemed? Mm -hmm right? Through that process. Mm -hmm. So that's the one-to-one -one relationship there. So it's really important because it ties into that the flesh and our soul, the spirit and the flesh are intertwined. Mm -hmm. Christ then rises in the flesh and ascends in the flesh into heaven, mm -hmm. right? His blood mm -hmm. into heaven for the atonement of our sins. We are going to be we are going to rise one day in the flesh, mm -hmm. right? As Job says, sees God with my own two eyes, these eyes that I have. And that is why it's so important that Christ has created things, there's a created order to things mm -hmm. that life is in the blood. Right. That's the soul is in the blood and there's something to that. So this, there's in part, it, it is a claim about how God created things in the order. It is also a distinction to not be like the pagan cultures. Yeah, definitely. That is a big portion of it. And that's what they're talking about in Acts. And that's a slight, slightly, uh, but, kind of threw that I, in there. But, but, I think, but I think inherently it is still that life is in the blood. There is yes. a respect for God's creative acts that there's a respect for life that comes with not eating the blood. Yes. And there's um, a seriousness surrounding sin as we've already talked about because in Leviticus 17, where that, that um, prohibition is, yeah. uh, it says, verse 10, I will set my face against any Israelite or foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Right. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. Right. So it's keeping in mind, not only God as the creator of life, but also God as, as the one who can redeem us from this situation That's and, right. and that it's going to have a hefty cost. Right. It's going to be life for life. That's and we right. see this animal sacrificial system reminding the Israelites of this day in and day out, or supposed to be reminding Israel this day in and day out, it's life for life. Sin is serious business. God is the creator of life. His, this, is, this is really serious. Yeah. And then <laughs> when Christ fulfills that, again, it's, 
it's a blood for blood. It's yes. life for life. And so while now there's no longer animal sacrifices, it's still a good idea to not to, to honor God's life and remember that. Yes. Honor God's create creative act of making life. Yes. Through not just like guzzling drinking drinking a That's cup right. of blood. Yes. Yeah, so, you know? And so, but yes, and in Acts 15, I think your point is well taken where other cultures were partaking in this sort right. of thing and this disregard for life. So it did serve the double duty of keeping Gentile Christians separated from So and yeah, exactly. So in one sense it was an actual claim of ontology, an actual claim of this is how reality is. Yes. And in another sense, it was a, a cultural thing. Keep yourself distinct and holy from the other cultures who are doing these things. <clears throat> Those are really the two like two areas. But there's also a second part of this question. I was going to say, but what yeah. about the second part of the question, Malik? Can I eat my steak blue or rare or must <laughs> okay. I have it well, well done? We, okay, so we actually looked this up. <laughs> we did. Yeah, well, we looked, at, we looked up meat practices because this is how sad we are in the West now. <laughs> we are not farmers. I mean, my great-grandfather would probably be rolling in his grave that I had to look up this question because right. he was a farmer. That's so right. he, he would have known this. But we had to look up like... How 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 is blood drained from animals? Right, because whenever how you, long is it aged for, and what does that mean? Whenever you get meat at the grocery store, there's always that red stuff on top. It's like, well, is there blood in that? Yeah. Like, when you, you get a you get a, the point is, you know, if you get a steak blue, it's basically raw, right? Yeah. Is that blood? Like, is yeah. there blood in there? Yeah. And so that's the question we found out. No. Technically, no. <laughs> Apparently, most of the blood is gone from right. the steak. From from the animal within minutes of it being um, slaughtered, and then um, the meat that we would purchase from a farmer or from a butcher or from a grocery store, uh, as beef in particular, is hung and aged for seven to fourteen days before it even reaches its final destination. Right. So it's hung to remove any of the remaining blood and aged for. I'm not sure why, guys, right. but it is aged. Yeah. So. <laughs> so if you like your steak blue, I guess it's totally fine. You're okay. Just don't be drinking yeah. like cups of blood. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> That's, That's weird. That is very weird. That's weird. And it does also make sense of, of um, you know, uh, when we get into First Samuel, we're going to be reading about Saul and, and, and how he actually made his army fail in this area because they were so hungry that they slaughtered and ate the animals pretty much right away before they had a good time to drain them. Right. Not good. I, okay, so I have a question pertaining to this idea oh, of okay, eating. Sure. <laughs> okay, so this is from uh, Deborah, and she says, "Hi, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Genesis eighteen eight says they offered milk and curds along with prepared calf to the three visitors. Right. This, I believe, breaks the kosher laws of eating dairy and beef together. Why is this a kosher law when Abram the Hebrew in Genesis fourteen thirteen ate these together? Just curious. Thank you for your answers." Prayer emoji, smiley face. <laughs> I like the prayer emoji, smiley face. <laughs> yeah. Deborah, thank you for this question. Okay, so a couple things here. Um, in Genesis, the kosher laws did not exist yet um, because Abraham is before the Mosaic law. However, the Mosaic law doesn't actually uh, prohibit uh, eating dairy alongside meat. Now, in modern Judaism, you are absolutely right. The modern kosher laws do outlaw eating dairy and meat together. Uh, but this is this was a later addition onto the, the law as it's found in Moses. So it became a, a rabbinical teaching to make sure that there was absolutely no way 
that the law of Moses could be broken in this area. So the law that that, that rule comes from is uh, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. So, and originally that, that practice, most scholars believe that boiling a kid in its mother's milk was a practice that was going on in like, in the land of Canaan by the various nations, uh, perhaps a fertility rite because it involves milk from a mother that's supposed to be life-sustaining, but actually bringing death to an animal that it was supposed to sustain. Other scholars also note that this would have been, uh, this could be taken as like a heinous, something that's heinous, something that you should not do because it's something that the mother's milk is something that God has provided. He has created this in the order of creation to sustain life and, and innocent life and young life. And instead it's bringing death to this animal. So, but that's where the, the later a modern Jewish kosher law is built off of that. So, but in the Bible, it's not an issue because first of all, Abraham is before the Mosaic law. But then second of all, the Mosaic law is don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. It's not don't eat dairy products along with meat products. Right there, though, it's an important note. There's a pattern and a way of thinking in that symbolism that we take for granted. We're a very functional, functionally minded society yeah. where it's like, oh, I just boil it. It doesn't know any better. Like, it's dead. It doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, they viewed that as hypocrisy. So the mother's milk, yeah, which would sustain outrage. the baby, yeah. would then be used to boil the baby. Mm-hmm. They're like, that is disgusting. Right, yeah. but it's a symbol of, of, of disgust. Mm-hmm. And so that pattern of thinking, because we've removed symbology completely from our way of thinking today. Yeah, but that, I think very unfortunate. It is unfortunate. But so I think that even that in itself, we often be like, oh, it's an arbitrary law. It's like, mm-hmm. you're not thinking about the fundamental of the law. Like why, mm-hmm. what's the purpose of law? And like what, what makes law uh, even useful in the mm-hmm. first place, even mm-hmm. worth having. Anyway, so that's my little yeah. side note. But yeah. hey, it would be it would also just as just as my own side note now, yeah. it would have been it would have been a very brutal law in the ancient world, in the time of Abraham, even in the time of Israel, to say you can never drink milk alongside eating meat because Water sources weren't always readily accessible or weren't always fresh water sources. They could be tainted. So a lot of ancient people drank milk as a, as a source of liquid, as well as fermented things like beer uh, and, and wine, various sorts of wine, because those were safe sources of, um, of drink, whereas water can be easily tainted. So it would have been a really difficult law, but it, mm. it wasn't a law, so, right. so we're good. Good. We're good. Okay, yeah. I have another question. Okay, okay, sure. I have another question for you. Uh, I don't have the exact wording down here. I just realized, but but <laughs> I know it was from Alicia. Okay, right. and I know she she wanted to know um, if it's still if it's appropriate for Christians to get tattoos because in Leviticus chapter nineteen, right, the Bible, the Mosaic law, outlawed Israelites from getting tattoos. So right. can Christians, Matlock, get tattoos? Okay. Yes, I, I'm reading the actual question here. And that is basically the question. Basically so the good question. job. I summed okay. it up. <laughs> so uh, there's a couple things with this because I think that, one, to ask this question, I think there's an inherent misunderstanding about the purpose of law. Okay. And number two, I'm going to answer kind of the quick answer, which is with another, I'm going to answer this question with another question, essentially. Why did Paul get Timothy circumcised? When throughout the whole text, 
he was like, don't get circumcised unless you be a Jew. Then all of a sudden he gets Timothy circumcised. Mm -hmm. Well, because they're not bound to the law. So Timothy's getting circumcised to preach the gospel to Jews. So that the Jews would accept him. So the Jews would accept him. So that he, they would listen to his gospel message. Exactly. So in a similar way with tattoos, even though I, I would personally discourage them, the question is, why are you getting the tattoo? Suppose you're a missionary and you're going to Africa, and there's this tribe in Africa that you need to appeal to, to so that you can give them the gospel and the Bible or whatnot. And uh, this tribe's like, you have to get a tattoo to be part of, to, for us to listen to you. Would you get a tattoo? That's my mm -hmm. question. And the answer is yes. So it looks like Paul circumcised Timothy for that very purpose. Mm -hmm. So you can't be rigid being like, oh, absolutely no tattoos, mm -hmm. because then it then it becomes a work of the law, law in itself that is not fundamental enough. Mm -hmm. the, law, the, the law of Christ, the gospel, is more fundamental than that. So the question is, why are you getting a tattoo in the first place? Yeah. Are you doing it for an image or are you doing it to preserve the gospel, to forward the Christ's kingdom. Do you see what I'm saying here? Mm -hmm. So the really the heart of this is what's important. Why are you getting the tattoo? Why are you getting the tattoo? And this is what I'm saying, that there's a misunderstanding with the purpose of law. Yeah. Because the law that given to the Jews was grounded in something greater, right? We're talking about faith and the Holy Spirit and these things. So that the, the other laws, like don't get tattoos, they're subject to these greater fundamental laws like the gospel. Yeah. So yeah, so like the 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 laws that you're talking about specifically with the tattoos, this this law was a part of distinguishing Israel from the surrounding cultures. Yes. Because when you go back and you look at it, uh, so it's Leviticus 19 verse 28. The quote is do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. And so it's it's connecting, uh, very appropriately, it turns out, when you study the surrounding cultures, it's connecting tattoos to these cults of the dead. Yes. Cutting your bodies for the, for, for the dead and, and marking yourself. And we know from looking at the surrounding cultures of the day, from looking into history, uh, that tattoos were markers. Uh, a lot of them acted like talismans, so like, you would put you would put essentially what we would call today like spells, protective things on your skin for certain gods, for certain demons. Uh, it, it was involved in the cult of the day. So no one's going around with like a tribal tattoo just to fit in. Right. In ancient Israel or in ancient Canaan or in ancient Egypt. I mean, you can you can look up ancient Egyptian mummies with tattoos and, and, and there's classifications of tattoos. So there, we know there's a whole cult of priestesses in Egypt who were, they tattooed their bodies to be a part of this cult, to be, right. to be a priest of this particular right. God. So, um, tattoos in the ancient world associated you with a certain religious group or cult. It associated you with the worship of a pagan god in particular. So culturally, that's what the purpose for this was. Right. So when you apply that to today, are you getting a tattoo today to align yourself with a pagan god no. Well, I mean, maybe well, in some cases. Well, uh, maybe in some cases. Well, I'm not going to say. Yeah, but not even just pagan gods. Self-worship. Okay, but this is where it gets complicated. Right. I was going to go there next because there is the whole vanity element of exactly. it. Exactly. I'm getting it because I think I look awesome. That's, and I want people to look at me. And That's I want right. people to, like, I want people to kind of idolize it's a my physical technique. body. Right. 
Right. That's exactly right. So there's a vanity so aspect to this. Yeah. And, and I and that's what I'm saying. So it's not as it's always boiling down to nothing you do, everything you do in faith, right, mm-hmm. is not sin. Mm-hmm. Anything not done in faith is sin. Mm-hmm. In other words, everything you do should be trusting in the Lord, mm-hmm. trusting in God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. If there's nothing in that, there's no. If it's just for the sake of doing it, because you know I I want to fit in, you're pleasing men. So in a mm-hmm. sense, it's sin, mm-hmm. right? That doesn't mean God can't use the fact that you have tattoos later on to, right? To, yeah. to so it's it's not as simple as a law that oh you got it therefore right you've lost spiritual points because that becomes a work of the law. Yeah, you've right. Yeah, it's yeah. like you've lost points and you can't get those points back. We need to acknowledge that there are multiple reasons that people get tattoos and not all tattoos are vanity. Right. Not all of them are. I know people personally who have very traumatically lost loved ones and they have tattoos that no one else can see or sometimes they can see them. Right. But it's for the purpose of of them remembering their loved one. This is different. Like these are things that we have to... That, that we have to think about deeply. I mean, as Christians, that's what we're called to do. We're supposed to be self-reflective. We're supposed to be meditating on God's word and on God and, and, and the mission that he has for us uh, are like corporately as a church, but also individually as a Christian and really work out our faith and how that applies into our life. So unfortunately, Alicia, there's not like a quick stamp like yes or no, uh, but definitely like we don't have to, we're, we're not under the law anymore in that sense. Right. But of and, course we're under the law of God, the law of Christ and, and, and his greater morality and we need to work out what and that is. even in the Old Testament law, okay, Christ quotes this, I think in, uh, where is it? I'll, I have it written down. Matthew 12, Three verses eight. Mm-hmm. I didn't write down the quote, but essentially, didn't David eat bread in the temple when he shouldn't have, according to the law? Indeed. It, right. So yes. the point here is that there's more fundamental truths, mm-hmm. there's more fundamental things in the faith yeah. than there are just abiding by, you know, the basic elements of the law. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's my, I guess, a long answer. I but like that. It's yeah. good. That's good it. Discussion. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> All right. I have a question for you then. All right. All right. Uh, why are there so many laws? And why are they so specific? Oh, my word. Yes. The age-old question, why so many? Why so specific? Uh, They are very specific. And um, uh, I think the Bible itself goes a long way. This really does relate to our big question. So it's a nice segue. Uh, But I wanted to uh, read to you a few areas in Leviticus itself where God gives the reason for a lot of these laws, for many, I would say most of these laws uh, that we read in in the middle chapters of Leviticus at the very least. So let's read Leviticus 18, verse 24. We're going to start in verse 24. Sure. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because... This is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Mm. So the reasoning that God has put all of these laws here that, that, that you can read in, you know, really 16, 17, 18 there is given because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. 
Verse 25 says, even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things, for all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. So the specificity of these laws comes from the fact that these were the exact practices that the nations were currently involved in and that Israel was going to see. It was going to witness. So God is, he's not starting from a blank slate and saying, okay, in my ideal situation, here's what I want you to do and here's what I don't want you to do. No, he's looking at the culture that he is judging for their sins. And he's saying, okay, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and don't do this, because these are the sins that have brought my judgment on these people. They're getting kicked out of Canaan for these reasons, because it's so detestable and it's so vile. So don't do these things. Right. Uh, and we see that again. There's justification for that. Again, that's the same uh, in, I have it written down, I think in 22, Leviticus chapter 22, uh, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 22. That's where I'm going here. Yes, okay, again in Leviticus 20, Verse 22, keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that in the land I'm bringing you to live, it may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I am going to drive out before you. Because they did these things, I abhorred them. But I said to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord, your right. God, who has set you so, apart. And from that's the what's nations. and right there. So it's not just about making them distinct from other nations so that people look on them, because that's part of it, mm -hmm. right? So that people will look at them. But it's also because God's bringing them into holiness, into salvation. Yes. So it's like, yeah, yes. right. And then that's the bigger part of it. Yes. So you're distinct because I want the world to be saved. I want the world to exactly. look at you like, this is what salvation looks like. Like, like it or hate it, love it or hate it, God chose ancient Israel to show himself to the world. That was part of his plan. Right. And we see, you know, in Leviticus 22 then, verses 32, he says, do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So there's this be holy because I am holy element. Right. Be different from the nations because I have a plan for you and it's to be holy like me. Right. Because we are, because God has promised, he promised Abraham and it continues throughout the scripture that through Abraham's descendants, all of the world would be blessed. Salvation was going to come through Israel. Right. Which we believe it did. That's right. Jesus. That's right. Right. And to add to this, I'm going to add another part about... Sure. So God is keeping them distinct. Yep. In a sense, this is protection so that they don't fall away and they can be saved is the, is the principle. They can be delivered from the evil snares and the things of this world is the mm -hmm. idea, right? Mm -hmm. the, the idea of deliverance. So here's this. This is Paul in Galatians. Of You can read the whole thing. I'm only going to read snippets. It's Galatians 3, verses 23 to 29, and then chapter 4... One to three, mm -hmm. okay? So let me just read you a little, some parts. So before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian. This is what you were talking, we were talking about. Our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now this faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. Mm -hmm. So basically they're being protected. And you have to ask yourself, 
What is this guardian? Well, they're following the rules to keep themselves distinct to the yeah. world. Do you see what I'm saying? Yep. At the same time, when when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, that is the guardian. Mm -hmm. The guardian's there, so you don't you no longer need to rigidly follow these laws, right? The Holy Spirit is the basis of the laws. The Holy Spirit is what created the laws to begin with. So you have these things. That's the reason why Paul can say to Timothy, get circumcised, right? It's not relativistic. It's something that's more fundamental. The laws themselves are not good unto themselves. You need something more fundamental to make them good. That's the Holy Spirit and stuff like that. Then Paul says again, uh, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Um, so that, so also, when we were underage, we were slavery under the elemental spiritual forces or basic principles of the world. Here again, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees, that being us, mm -hmm. that being great Christ, until the time set by his father. Right. Right. So the point of the law, to hark back to that big question, which yeah, is... Yeah, I was like, we're what, now rolling into our big question, that's right. which I love. What is the purpose of the laws in Leviticus, yeah. right? It is to be a guardian. It is protect us so that Christ could come about. Right. Right. Protect Israel that's so a, that Christ could come about. Yes. And it made them notably different than the nations set apart. It made them holy from the nations, right. set apart to God, so that his plan of salvation uh, could happen. That's right. Now, um, I, think it, I think it is interesting then, when you look at the purpose of the Mosaic Law, it is interesting then um, how God then speaks to the Apostle Peter about now, after Christ's death and resurrection, the Gentiles are now God's holy people as well. They are now, it is now multicultural. Right. It's not just about Israel. It's about Christians. It is about people who follow Christ. Because remember in Acts 10, Peter sees this vision before he's called to go preach to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, without becoming a Jew, right? He, he, was, he wasn't a proselyte to Judaism first. He was a Gentile living as a Gentile, not underneath the Mosaic law. Uh, and, and he became a Christian and the Holy Spirit filled him. So this vision to Peter was unclean animals outlawed by the Mosaic law. And God shows Peter this three times and says, kill and eat. And Peter's like, God, I've never eaten anything impure and unclean. And God says to him, don't call what is, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And what's interesting to that, uh, about that, is that Peter, God's saying to Peter, you are now no longer distinguished by being Israel, by being a Jew. You are now distinguished by my righteousness, by my name, by my plan of salvation. And so will Cornelius, like so will these right. Gentiles. So it opens it up. <coughs> so there's still an element of holiness to Christianity, but it is not the holiness of the law. As you were speaking about the guardianship right. of the law, it is now we are under a new covenant arbitrated by the one who fulfilled well, the Mosaic Law. Because even those, because those works of the law, and what people often forget, are more superficial than what's happening in the yeah. New Testament. It, it's more, everyone's like, oh, the laws are so easy to follow. It's kind of like, um, like sound bites. They're so easy to remember and follow. It's like, just do the checklist and everything's good. Um, but it's less fundamental than what you see happening in the New Testament. And... Um, it's without getting into super detail, Christ fulfilled the law completely. Mm -hmm. And it was by loving your neighbor, loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself, mm -hmm. right? 
two things in that thread. One thing, the second half, loving your neighbor as yourself, is Leviticus 19.18. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not the Ten Commandments, it's Leviticus 19.18. Mm-hmm. And what you have there is that that loving process is what the fulfillment of the law is. Mm-hmm. It's that good works. It's the priest who get let David eat the bread, right? right? It's that loving your neighbor as yourself. So there are things that are more fundamental than just the rigid compliance to the law. And these works of the law were a shadow, according to Hebrews, of things to come. Yep. In other words, what's real, the substance of physical being, Christ, right, casted a shadow back in time, right, which when you look at that shadow, it's not the actual thing, but it's a, a, a vague representation, right, a silhouette of what actually something is, something that's detailed of an actual person. Mm-hmm. So that's the imagery being used there. And so that's so important because when you ask these questions about like, should we get tattoos and what's the, you know, uh, is do we need to eat meat and stuff like that? It's not about the rigid compliance of following rules, mm-hmm. right? Leviticus is subject to Christ. Christ wrote Leviticus, right? Mm-hmm. It was for a time and a place. Anyways. And it was culturally specific yes. to Israel. Not the morality behind it. No, but the, but the good the, works. But, yeah, but of course how not. it was implemented was specifically written because and, there were cultures in, in engaging in And that's things. what we talked about last time was that the mm-hmm. good, there's the works of the law and the good works. And the good works you see are always more important than the works of the law throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that people will always you know, help an animal out when it's, you know, if it's stuck in it or if, so, if someone's hurt, they'll help them. So it's kind of like good works are always more important. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so there's a lot more to be said about the law, which is good because we still have a couple weeks of going through the law. (laughs) So more on this to come, but I hope you enjoy your time with us today. If you have any comments or questions, please pop it down below. If you have questions for future episodes, like in in, in the Kings and the Psalms and the Proverbs and that, please also pop them in the comments below because we would love a chance to discuss your questions on this show. See you later. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.